Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Detroit's Movement Festival has become a pilgrimage for dance music heads in North America and beyond. But when the Paxahau Production Company took over the reins in 2006, the festival's future was anything but certain. In this week's exchange, RA's Matt McDermott speaks to Paxahau's core team about the process of making movement into the celebrated festival it is today. In conversation with Jason Hoover, Jason Clark, Sam Fotis, and Chuck Flask, we hear of Paxahau's roots in Detroit's 90s party scene, the importance of working with the city's artistic community, and the challenges of running one of dance music's defining events. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Paxahau is up next. I'm the uh, operations director, and um, I look over city permitting, uh, production, general operations of the event, and integrating all of the various departments um, into the execution, planning and execution phase of the event uh, on site, as well as most of our other large-scale events. My name is Jason Hoover, co-founder with Jason Clark of Paxahau. Um, our background um, was uh, producing uh, underground electronic music parties in Detroit in the early 90s, and uh, we started Paxahau um, around 1998, and um, we've been uh, producing parties and uh, um, other people, you know, other events and uh, music festivals since 2006. My name is Chuck Flask. I'm the talent buyer. I've been uh, buying talent since 2006 with Paxahau. I also manage our club events and uh, talent relations, I guess you would say. I'm Jason Clark, as Huvar said, and I started Paxahau with him in 98. I'm the creative director. So basically just anything visual that relates to the festival, I'm either designing it or overseeing the designers who are doing it. Let's let's start out and speak about the 20th anniversary a little bit. Uh, Jason H., would you mind telling me a little bit about PAX 20? It was in Burt's Warehouse Theater. Uh, Richie Houghton was DJing. Like, what was what was the significance of this event, and how did it bring you back to the early days of PAX Ohio? 
I mean, 20 is a big number, and we didn't really start celebrating anniversary parties until four, and it was really because that was a good name for the party that month, and uh, and, and once you do one, then you're, you're kind of hooked, right? So we've, we've produced one ever since. Um, Richie's been a part of our, our history since the beginning, and he's participated in a lot of our anniversary parties, and every one of them has had kind of a unique element to it, whether it's the venue, the combination of... Uh, um, uh, uh, DJs or producers that, that we curate or um, you know something visually and when you get to a number like 20 even though uh, it's kind of a you know a funny thing to look at anniversaries or look at the you know the number in general as being significant it is it's just something that's embedded in people's minds and we want to do something special so we had done a number of different parties that um, were you know it, it you know unique venues or some went later some went two days long some had a you know dinner element to it and this one we we really just wanted to get back to basics for a couple of reasons one we missed it and you know you know producing dance parties at clubs and and, and having more festivals go by than we can count you, you you just naturally will lose touch with kind of where you came from which is that really deep dark late loud you know techno room and we wanted to do something that was a, an homage to the past but also something that we wanted to educate our audience now that had grown with us to something that many we realized had never truly experienced because they grew up now listening to techno in nightclubs or at music festivals and they never really heard it in a warehouse setting so Burt's has always been a, a favorite venue um, we We've, we've always wanted to do something there. Um, there was a lot of reasons that we hadn't, you know, done anything there yet. But the combination of elements and the availability of Richie and John and, and, and uh, Tom, our other friend that that helped us with it, you know, it just felt really natural that we should do something like this. And the venue was available and uh, friendly, and we walked through it. You know, introducing two staffs that have worked together as long as our two staffs have can be challenging because everybody has got. An idea of how this event or events should you know execute um, we had a unique um, you know set of circumstances that um, allowed us to produce this event and make it special we created a budget that that was you know by no means uh, responsible financially but it, it had to it had to happen a certain way everybody was in and um, we, uh, we we went into it um, with the right intentions, and, and fortunately, the event executed exactly as we had hoped for. And the you know the peak moments of that, which happened late at night, really reminded us of not just where we came from and what we missed, but being able to experience through osmosis, you know, the 1,700 people that were there, and knowing a fair percentage of them had never experienced a techno party like this before in Detroit was really incredible. And um, it was it was it was a great thing to experience. It was a, it was a fun uh, anniversary to celebrate and, and recognize that you know we're still all working together and we're still all friends and and you know the city is, is still really our closest partner and uh, it's what, what makes these events feel so special. Yeah. And in the past you said, you know, uh, the ideal setting for this music is a dark room, a police beacon, like an amazing sound system. And, uh, you know, this is what you're getting back to with something like PAX 20. You also mentioned that it sort of like brought you back to when you originally fell in love with this music. Like what, what were the first like dark rooms that inspired you or, or the warehouses or the Packard plan or, you know, when did you fall in love with this music? 
The, the Bankle Building and mm-hmm. and Voom Warehouse Parties and Richie, you know, those those are those are the the real easy targets. I mean, there was a lot of activity that that happened in the early '90s in Detroit, but those three things specifically are what sort of woke me up uh, and 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 inspired me to make some life decisions that I'm, I'm still. You know, inspired by today. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jason Clark, when did you meet Jason H? You know, I started going to parties. Uh, in, I'm from Dayton, Ohio, and uh, and then I came to a party in, in, in Detroit, and right away you could just tell the difference. Like in, in all like the Midwest rave culture, everyone was like, "Oh, the parties in Detroit are the best." So I, I went, and yeah, it was just like it was just dark room, giant sound system, and like a couple of lights. So I actually went uh, on the night, there was supposed to be a big party at the train station, and it got shut down, and then there ended up being uh, a party at 1217 where Jason and a bunch of other people lived, and uh, that's where we met. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, in Dan Seco's Techno Rebels, he speaks about the blue loft space, sort of like laying the roots for Paxa Hall. Was that the the 1217 mm-hmm. lot that you're speaking mm-hmm. about? And, and this is a, like a more like communal living type situation or can you describe what was going on there? Yeah, there was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a building here in Detroit in a, a little district called Capitol Park, which at the time was empty. And, um, you know, one person from our little social group had uh, discovered this building and met this landlord that had all these empty loft spaces. They were like 2,600 square feet uh, a piece, and there was six floors, two on each floor. And he kind of brought it back to the group and was like, you know, this we found this building, and, you know, I've got an opportunity here to, to fill it up, you know, if anybody's interested. And um, I, I think at its peak, we counted 23 residents. And it was, it was, I mean, looking back, it was, it was exactly communal, you know, at the time it was a bunch of, you know, cowboy kids going down there and, uh, you know, two or three roommates in a spot. And, uh, ultimately it became a, a very wired place. We had, there was a live studio in one place. There was two dance floors. There was a place that was always a chill out room, which was, you know, uh, mostly my place in the blue loft. Um, you know, we had, we had different types of people and artists and, and, and promoters and you know that were all living together and ultimately we we began to open the, the, the loft building for the most part every weekend so if there was a warehouse party we would do the after parties there and if there were no parties we would do the whole parties there and we you know it, you know get six or seven hundred people through the doors every single weekend and this went on you know for a fair amount of time and I think that, that that period was was so inspiring to everybody that experienced it that, you know, looking back and, and, and referencing, you know, 1217 to a certain generation is always going to get, you know, that sort of lean back eye contact, you know, if you were there. And I'm sure that, you know, there's there's other people from other generations and other shows. Like it's almost like a Woodstock sort of a, I would I would probably relate it to from in our lives. And um, there was just a lot of really incredible dance experiences that happened there. A lot of incredible um, introductions and and, and most most incredible inspirations. Nobody, nobody walked out of there the same, and and almost everyone that was involved in that property in some level stayed involved with the electronic music community for many many years to come. It's it's interesting. Like you were speaking about, like this uh, 
sort of wistful, lean back, kind of like misty-eyed look, and you sort of got that when Sam, when we were talking about twelve seventeen. But do you, do you remember any particular experiences? Well, there? I mean, I, I just think that we were all uh, incredibly fortunate. I mean, that you know, the the timeline of the scene here in Detroit has been documented in nauseam and in various different ways. But you know, there's a there's a group of us that still. <clears throat> stay in communication with each other or are fortunate enough to still be involved in the industry or the scene that recognize the fact that we were able to all exist together uh, during a, a, a very strong epoch moment of the scene um, where everything was kind of culminating this the second wave of, of, of artists um, like Richie and John and Carl and, and all those guys and it it really created a, a very strong bond. You know, it was it was those those cresting moments of a, of a scene that you don't you tend to only read about. Like, there's very few people that really get to experience them, like the advent of the punk scene in New York or the hippie scene in San Francisco and things of that. When when these things are are all of these facets are coming together and creating these magic moments. You know these. DJs playing together or people dropping, you know, you're dealing with a time when nobody knew the records, nobody had cameras, nobody had phones, you know, it was only like these moments that if you weren't there, you didn't experience them. And if you were there, you had this collective kind of energy of connection with everybody else that was there, right? So it's a, it's a very kind of cohesive bond that we have with the people that we are still friends with or even the ones that we don't see very often that were always around back then because as the place 1217 was also kind of the crash pad hostel for kids that came from out of state or out of city when there were big parties so it was like everybody was hanging out that was like kind of the nucleus the hub where everybody was catching up and that's where everybody was like exchanging information about what was going on in the scene in their locations and stuff and this is pre-internet you know and and all of that stuff so it was a it was an incredibly human conduit of information exchange you know it was personal it was tactile it wasn't cold and isolated like everything is via social media now so by default those relationships that you had with people were stronger because it was a personal thing instead of through a computer or through a phone or or any of those things you know and and we all knew we were ex we were experiencing something special like we could feel it you know so it was just it's a very you know sometimes it gets emotional when you think about it because it's you know that uh it's very hard for things to come together in that way in a subculture to to then go on to become a seven billion dollar a year industry globally you know um but uh i'm, I'm i know i'm very thankful that you know I, a that i met these guys there and and b that i was able to experience that in my in my lifetime because i don't think a lot of people really do and chuck was the second wave of detroit artists in 1217 uh release was being a part of that formative a formative experience for you as well well i didn't know these guys when uh when they were living at 1217 but oddly enough some of my friends from high school uh moved into 1217 uh right around 1996 
late 95, early 96, and uh, we would go down there just to hang out with them. And late night we would hear like bass or something from the basement. I had no idea what it was, you know, and uh, I would I'd ask my friends, I'm like, what is this? You know, every time we're here at like 12 or two o'clock in the morning, there's, you know, bass. So anyways, <laughs> they, uh, they told me to go down there and just say I was friends with the people who lived in, uh, I think it was two south or was it two north? It wasn't the blue room. Uh, blue was on three, so it would have been, so, it would have been uh, two. I don't know, it was one of those. Anyways, they lived in there, and, I, and they just said, go down there, say you're friends with the people who live here, and they'll let you in. And it was my first electronic music experience, you know, at a, I was still in high school, and it was like, wow, this is crazy. You know, like, I've never seen anything like it before. I was uh, going to punk shows at, like, 404 Willis and random other stuff like that, and hippie stuff, like Grateful Dead and stuff like that, but... This was my first experience, but I didn't even know these guys yet, you know? It was, so it was just kind of weird, you know? But um, that was my experience with 1217, you know? Because after that, it kind of faded away, I think around like 96, right? Yeah. So. And, and you had met them by 96? Well, no, I actually met these guys around, I met Sam earlier, probably around 99. Um, I met Jason and Jason around 2000, uh, randomly. I was DJing. Uh, my friend Keith Kemp had, uh, was friends with these guys. And um, he said, you should go play on their radio station. They have this internet radio station that they archive all these DJ sets from Detroit. You should go play on it. So um, I got in contact with the guys and they had me over to the radio show in Jason's basement and I, I played a set down there and that was uh, the first time really meeting these guys and then randomly we threw a party where I was living downtown and I invited the guys. Bring your own meat. It was called Bring Your Own Meat. <laughs> it was a great party. And, uh, and you know, I was really like... You know, I, I really wanted the guys to come, you know, and it was funny because I was hitting up Jason a lot and he's like, a lot. He was like, bro, he's like, he's like, you've called me more than my, my girlfriend or something like that. So I was like, all right, fine. So I sent him a fax to the party. And ever since then, we were just like friends, you know, they came to the party, you know, it was very funny. Yeah. Was, you know, our lives will forever be measured by before Chuck and after. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <BC>. Yeah. <laughs> but we started uh, we started working with each other. Um, uh, Jason asked me, I think it was the second festival, uh, second DMF, and he asked me um, if I wanted to take pictures and like help him out with uh, certain things. You yeah. know. And I was like, yeah. And that was, I guess, would be considered one of my first days on the job. Wow. Yeah. yeah. We got a bunch of pictures from that because we used to put a lot of pictures on our website. Yeah, we still have that whole world. It was when the digital cameras first were introduced. Yeah. And we could, I mean, he had a really kick ass radio, camera. You know, it was manual. You had to put two pages in it. It was like two megapixels, a Canon, like power shot. Canon power shots, yeah. And yeah. The, all of it, all the first archived pictures on the website are from that. When we that, and those, that was when we first started taking photos. I think there's not a hundred photos from every year before that total because they're all filmed and we didn't have cameras at our parties at all. 
on purpose. And uh, when that came out, we were like, you know, the ability to take a, an action shot and put it up on the web because the web had just kind of been developed and it fit. So, yeah. You know, he was a, the right man for the time. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was great. Uh, it's, it's interesting. There's always been this uh, drive towards archiving with Paxahow, like uh, whether it's photos or I, I remember when I was first coming to Movement, I think in maybe like 2007, um, the friends who brought me are like, yeah, you missed this set here, check it out right here, or every single set is online within the following months of the festival. And um, obviously radio was really important to you guys as well in the early days. And, and why is archiving such a big part of what Paxahal does? Well, I can answer for myself, which I, you know, I made a lot of those decisions early with Jason. I, I've personally always been a saver. Um, I've, I, I just, I've accumulated lots of stuff, regardless of what phase I was in. You know, I'd, I'd always save and organize toys and then save and organize family, you know, heirlooms. I really saved and organized t-shirts and it was just an instinctual part of my personality, really. And I've always been, um, sort of a, what was that from that one show, Grumpy Librarian, you know? I just, I thought it was really important to preserve things and order them, um, even when those things were, you know, uh, maybe meaningless to other people at the time. And when we, um, Jason and I were studying technology and internet technology, pretty pretty front row for a long time and when mp3 streaming was was developed and introduced we were testing it Im immediately we were testing how it worked what sort of bandwidth we needed how the compression of the audio um, uh, you know w you know how it actually um, worked digitally how this could potentially function as a tool in our wheelhouse because we were both coming out of this uh, sort of the dark ages when parties started to get busted so there wasn't really a very strong underground scene we had already made our life's decisions so there's no going back and the, the 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 scene had not evolved into the club community yet so there was this weird little dark period and that just happened to be at the exact same time that mp3 streaming was introduced and ultimately shoutcast and you know winamp and yeah. it has all happened within the same year so you know when we first announced the Paxahow project to the world um, it was it was through this medium and our anniversary that we celebrate is, is really to the anniversary of when we registered Paxahow.com mm. so we had already been operating sort of in the shadows developing this idea but but you know that's when we first launched online and then that fall is when we started broadcasting when we figured out how to broadcast mm. from the basement so the broadcasting and the archiving were the were the sort of the two phases of the original project. The the broadcasting, you know, was something that the, I had mentioned we were working and studying on and testing, and uh, you know, trying to basically be like the pump up the volume of the techno community because that was an inspiring movie. There was a there was a there was a pirate radio station.
organization in the UK that was a big inspiration to us that, that was already doing it. And the fact that you could listen to you know live music from anywhere in the world on your computer and the music was underground, this was way before licensing or the business got a hold of it. So there was no interruptions, there was no sites getting shut down. I mean, this was just raw access to the, to the feed, which was tapping into that same sort of energy that we were exploring at underground parties. So we just went all in. It was all we were doing. And the archiving was a very natural secondary part because we were we had the equipment, we were just digitally recording everything, and then we were compressing it and putting it up on our site in the archive section. And what started as, you know, last week's show or two weeks of shows ultimately became a thousand sets. And that was from parties, the basement, as well as uh, motor uh, nightclub. Yeah. And just to get the timeline correct, the period when the underground starts to have some issues in Detroit is like 97. 97, okay. I'd say, was the center year, you know, and with a little shoulder time around it. Yeah, got it. And then 98, Pax Hall begins. And then there's the parties that happen in conjunction with the World Cup somewhere in there as well. And then... There was one attempted event in Pontiac that was around the World Cup, but what what really changed everything was the opening of Motor Lounge in Hamtramck. Yeah. That's that's what brought everybody out of the shadows and put them back on a regular dance floor. Was Motor? Yeah, got it. And Josh Glazer was booking up there, and okay. And then, can you can you speak about when? DMF starts in 2000. Like you guys are all in Heart Plaza for that. Um, and did that feel like? I, I mean, from what I gather, nobody knew what was going to happen. Basically, like leading right up to the actual event, the permit is pulled the night before. Uh, people are setting up all night, um, and it ends up feeling, from what I understand, like fairly triumphant for the scene that had gathered from 1217 into Motor, around all these amazing second wave producers who have somehow managed to pull this off in downtown Detroit. Can you, can you describe, uh, can you describe the event? Like, Chuck, you were there. I, I was, I was there. It was still, I think, a little pre before knowing, uh, these guys because, uh, I met them probably right around that time frame. Um, it was right around there. It was around first there. photos were from, I don't know if it that was from 2001. One. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, it was around that time frame that I met you guys. But I went. Um, it was cool. It was like nothing I've ever really seen. I never went to a festival before. I've been to big concerts and stuff, but was never to anything like electronic, you know, techno DJ stuff. And it was cool to check out, you know. It was neat to see, you know it go down you know I thought it was cool it was cool to see Richie play you know and yeah man that's deep well I don't know what to really say <laughs> you know what I mean I went it was cool it's like you, you know? said I don't think a lot of people really knew what to expect at the time you know um Paxahow hadn't really we were all still working I was working in development at the Detroit Institute of Arts, you know, and uh, I was working late that day and I'm like, well, I'll go check it out. You know what I mean? And then you get down there and it's just like, oh my God, where are all these people coming? You know what I mean? So um, it's one thing to, it's kind of a multifaceted thing, you know, like one thing seeing 
something that you are passionate about, like getting recognition that you feel it always deserved, you know, and then being um, a lifelong, you know, born and raised in a city, the city and its cultural influence getting that recognition as well, you know, um, was definitely moving and motivational, you know, um, and I feel, I really feel that that was a catalyst for us as a group to kind of see the, um, the viability or the, or the, the quantification of what we had been kind of pouring all of our energies into, uh, after we finished, you know, work that day, you know, to get together at Jason's house and write proposals and emails and you know what I mean? Um, it was, it was, it was validation that we had made the right kind of choices. Like there's traction here, you know, and things of that nature, you know? So it was, uh, it was very enlightening, you know, from, from that aspect. And, um, as, as Chuck said, I mean, we had been to concerts and stuff like that, but festivals really hadn't existed. And um, seeing something as multifaceted and, and complex, you know, at that, at that time, you know, um, seeing what was possible was a was a uh, was pretty cool. Yeah. I'll just say too. It was just. I mean, we we were like a night culture, yeah. and then to go to this festival and like see yeah, those those people cool part, during the know. day. Well, it was a, it was just a novel experience. At that point, there was no like day parties. That just didn't happen. So a, it's a festival, and b, it's in downtown of the city, and and c, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. I mean, it changed everything. It changed a lot of things. It, um, you know, like Jason was saying, is you know, we were a night culture. It was a, a you know, a, a looking back, a loose network of communication. You know, from city to city. We didn't ever have any units of measure in to determine how many people were really part of this, you know, global, national, and local community. Like, we just didn't really know. And one of the biggest speculations about, you know, the first festival in 2000 was like, how is this going to work? Like, who, you know, is going to care? You know, and the turnout um, was was quite remarkable. Seeing how many people really cared about not just electronic music, but cared about you know making the trip to Detroit. It was it, it really changed everything. Especially because right. back then a, bi a big party was like a thousand people. A huge party was a thousand people. Yeah, yeah. at least here. Here and yeah. yeah. stuff like that. And so to fill the bowl where the movement stage is now is, is just like something that's somewhat unthinkable before it, it never it had never occurred i mean music yeah. festivals didn't really exist here you had lollapalooza which was still moving around and there were no examples of daytime electronic dance festivals at all that anybody had to, to to reference in the in the states there was some stuff going on in europe but you know back then it's just a different world. You know, you can go over there and visit and check it out, but you never could apply any of that experience to the U.S. before that. So, And then simultaneous to this, this, this predates Paxa Howell's involvement uh, with Detroit Electronic Music Festival. Uh, it predates the movement brand. Um, but you guys were developing a reputation for throwing club shows that were sort of on a different level than other things that were going on at the time. Can you, can you speak a little bit about the early 2000s? The radio had been going for a couple of years. You, uh, obviously, the advent of Dev 
had like lit a fire under everyone's asses. Like, what was going on with Paxahal before getting involved with movement? Well, I'll, I'll speak briefly. The, the the big difference, you know. I don't even know if the festival was the actual turning point for what is the most significant difference with early Paxahal parties compared to later Paxahal parties. But the the early ones, we would literally sit and design the event from scratch. So we would we would identify a venue, we would work together to identify what you know talent we wanted to have and who we wanted to play and we would contact the artist directly and and bring the artist over to curate these events and we were doing between you know 10 15 a year for a very long time the the the, the significant shift is when the popularity of the music globally you know hit a level where Agents were made, you know, and then ultimately schedules, which ultimately became touring schedules. So then, you know, that that communication shifted to where now the the calls were incoming rather than outgoing. Where you know, hey guys, you know, I've got an artist coming over to the U.S. and there's a chance for a U.S. date on this. Does that work for you guys? And they they were still very spread out because North America just wasn't ready for for what it now has immersed itself in. So th that to me was the big shift. Is, you know, these were kind of you know parties that didn't happen very, very often. We used to do a lot of decoration, unconventional venues, and then when we went into the clubs, we would we would decorate the clubs, you know, so wholeheartedly because, you know, we didn't have them every single yeah. weekend. So you know, if we if we worked, you know, three four weeks on an event, that was kind of common. Yeah. So you know, decorating for two or three days was kind of like the way the way it worked. And then these parties would happen, and you know, they were theme related, and they were fun, and the music was great, and they were the closest you could get to to an underground party being at a legitimate venue but they live somewhere in between where we were and where we are now mm. where where now things are are for the most part you know chuck chuck fields you know um uh, agency um offers from touring musicians yeah and you know we we had all kind of one of the underlying themes or connective threads you know particularly between jason jason and i was the appreciation of ambient ambient music you know so you know, anything from like AGF to Vladislav Delay to um, Biosphere, you know, I mean, these were all people that were, we were trying to fold into the mix, you know, um, because of our appreciation for them by having them at these, you know, at the events along with Mono Lakes and Chris Leavings and Marcos and things like that. And, you know, it's unfortunate because you just don't see that anymore. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there used to be like a chill out room culture or facet to the parties here in Detroit, you know, and um, it was something that we were always kind of wholeheartedly engaged in as seeing as a, seeing it as a necessary facet as another kind of, you know, uh, portion of the of the of the scene that deserves appreciation, you know, because these guys are doing amazing amazing work in music, and um, we should bring the chill out room back. Well, the, you know, the yeah. chill out room is slowly coming back. I mean, you know, because you know, Stephen's doing some parties with the chill out rooms. Yeah. You know, be sweet. They're small, but they're cool. Yeah, sweet. I can't. Like, it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's interesting for for me, like. Attending movement, I, I remember it was maybe 2008, but uh, I think at the time it was probably the Beatport stage facing the river, mm -hmm. and 
it was like Clark Warner opening at maybe noon or one. Yeah, yeah. And and this was like it was really it was such a beautiful set and like an ambient techno mm-hmm. set and um you know, a few people from Detroit came up to me and they were like, Yeah, he's he is the warm up guy. Mm-hmm. Like and this is and and so that was still like coming across that like we're thinking about the day in this way where we start out with ambient or even like having somebody like Mark Ernestus play mm-hmm. earlier in the yeah. day or something like That's that. That's how we typically try to program our stages. It's a little harder now like to do a lot of ambient stuff. We love it, you know. But unfortunately, you know, you bring someone to do an ambient set and they're on stage and uh, it's early in the day. So not a lot of people like run to it, you know what I mean? And, and we just start feeling bad for the artist. And then, you know, another stage opens up and it's, you know, yeah. it's loud and with, with the, with the, it's, it's hard. With to, the increase in after parties, it's hard to came the natural increase in sleep-ins. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the very early days of the festival, this was the first thing everybody would do every day. And then, you know, the parties would go till you know, two or three with a few exceptions. And then it's get up and start the next day. I mean, Saturday at noon. Was, line down the down the sidewalk and you know like chuck said you know we don't this is a, a kind of music that we're very fond of we feel very close to and you know putting a lot of effort into something uh, for a limited audience or maybe a, you know just not the right time but we think about it a lot yeah you know? we always want to do it i i just think that we would need like a room or like a dome or something to do it and then there's nowhere to do it on the venue yeah. you know like yeah, that sound bleed really there would be sound bleed and it would be a total buzzkill let's talk about heart plaza um and you guys got involved with the festival in 2005 pax took over the underground stage yeah. um I don't know who would be best for this, actually, but can somebody describe what Heart Plaza looks like to somebody who's never been to Detroit, who's never seen the grounds? That would be grounds. Okay. Sam lives there. <laughs> Sam's got a little address. You know, <laughs> um, you know there, there, there's, <laughs> there's multiple ways that you could look at it. You know, us having such an inherent or a prolonged amount of time there, you know, it's kind of a love-hate relationship, you know, um, designed and, you know, by Isama Noguchi. It is, a, you know, the only park in the world that he has had his hands in on that level. And from somebody or a group of people that appreciate architecture and, and you know, kind of things of that nature, I mean, we love it, you know. Um, but on the other hand, it was it was designed in a time where they were not even thinking of multi-use facilities, you know, and the materials and the way it was built and things of that nature are not exactly conducive to the large scale things that, that have gone on there long before we were in there. And over time it's, it's taken its toll. You know, um, I think that, um, there are a few of our patrons that are, that are returning fans. You know, we're very fortunate to have a, a, a very, a, you know, uh, enthusiastic fan base that have been to every festival, you know, that have come back and they, I think maybe they kind of notice it's a little ragged around the edges, you know, um, but it's, 
you know, Detroit, everybody's aware Detroit has been through a lot of tumult from an economic standpoint over the last decade and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's the unfortunate truth that when things like that happen, some of the last things that are, that are put on the list are maintenance and upkeep of facilities like this because of other things that are higher priority, you know, um, neighborhood services, things of that nature and stuff. So, you know, we, but we're, we're incredibly fortunate I, and I can't stress this enough, our, our partnership with the city is so strong and the people that manage and run the facility um, have as deep of a passion to make sure that the event happens in a happens and happens in a safe manner and um, that the facility is ready for us. You know, I mean, we've, we've dealt with some obstacles here and there, but, you know, for the most part, it, it is, you know, the the park is almost like like a person that's part of the event you know um it is it is that familiar face that you see you know no matter what we do in regards to stage design or infrastructure or whatever it's those those familiar turns and 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 radiuses and whatever that for those returning people it it gives them that sense of home with the event and for the the new fans that come to it it is unlike any other scape you know what i mean it's it's a hardscape place with these amazing monuments and and you know turns and and things and and i feel that the that the magic of the place kind of outweighs the tatteredness of it you know and it really becomes like like a throbbing heart during that event for lack of a better metaphor i mean there's no for people that are you know true kind of keepers of the history of the music and whatever the significance of collectively being together within this park in the middle of the city where the music was created which is why all of these people are here they get it you know what i mean they they have these magic moments throughout the weekend where they're like holy shit this is really amazing you know so um but yeah it's it's you know obviously there's things that that we would love to see happen there you know but we'll we'll take it man i mean we you know we love that place it's it's our home yeah, like I get the sense that like Heart Plaza is movement. Movement is Heart Plaza. Like people, it's just this association that can't be broken. And it was it was originally designed as a sort of like an outdoor showroom. But they used to have so in the eighties they used to have it was basically because there's you know Detroit is a is a is an incredible diaspora of culturals, you know, different cultures, you know, there's Italians, there's Polish, there's Greek, there's, you know, Arab Americans, there's Chaldeans, there, there's so many. So in the summer, it used to be every weekend was a different ethnic festival because at the time, sprawl had happened, but a lot of the, the core ethnic groups that had been around over the generations were still kind of, you know, centered around the churches that kind of were on the outskirts of downtown. So you had the Greek festival in there, you had the Italian festival, and of course, Jazz Fest, which we're, which we're also involved with now, you know, started in Heart Plaza in 1980 with the Grand Prix the first year in 1981, which would, it was actually Formula One, which I wish they would do. That's so sweet. But, you know, um, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was really, it was really kind of, uh, you know, it, it was 
a community park where these things could happen, you know? And then, you know, it just obviously Detroit went through its economic things that everybody's aware of and stuff and, and more and more sprawl started happening. So these cultural groups started having their festivals out where their people, you know, kind of moved to, you know? And, um, yeah, that's, it's, a, it's, I mean, I think it's a typical case of any non any city or municipality that does not have public transportation of sprawl, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of that big bang, everything expands away from the center and, and, you know, gems like this end up being left in the, in the wake kind of. Why did you prefer Jason when, when you guys were given the underground stage in 2005, like, uh, I believe in, in another interview you said that's the one that we wanted. We preferred the underground stage. And why did you prefer the underground stage? I'm just going to snap back into it after Sam's books on tape voice. <laughs> I got so relaxed there. Just tell me about Heart Plaza. <laughs> Um, so the, the underground stage is the only stage with a cement roof and, and had that as close to warehouse feeling as possible. It was definitely the orphan of the property. Nobody ever wanted it. You know, nobody uh, ever really saw the same value that, that we did only because of our background. Um, you know, the guys that, you know, started curating the festival uh, in the beginning and, and, and through 2005 had seen some of these global events in other places and were associating some of the outdoor areas a little closer with their vision. So um, when, when uh, you know, we had been asked to produce a stage, we put together a proposal, and when it was um, uh, basically revealed to us that the underground stage is what, what they were thinking, we were really happy because that, in, in all of our imaginations and, and in all of our discussions, that's what we were really hoping for. So that was a, that was a great um, moment when, when we realized we were all working on the same idea. And then when we moved in there, um, you know, that year we, we kind of brought in as many of our friends in a concentrated form as possible. I think we had a Tronic Day, we had a Mutech Day, um, you know, so we, we had, you know, we had reached out to other friends, other promoters, you know, record labels, artists, just to try to do kind of an all-in-one as much as we could of, of our history mm -hmm. and the kind of music that we were representing, which was different. Um, and it was, it was just a different lane than, than most people. Um, and it was it was a great success. And I like the weatherproofness of it down there. Um, we like the concrete. We've worked very hard to address the sound reflection over the years. It's always been a favorite. It's a very difficult stage uh, to make sound good. And and it's also a very difficult stage to program because if you make it, you know, too obscure, it's empty. And if you make it too popular, it's overcrowded. So, you know, to get in that sweet spot, you know, and, and book proper techno, because um, down in the pit there is really you know, where the magic happens. Um, you know, Chuck's done a very good job, you know, over as many years as I can count now that, um, you know, getting getting the programming down there right. Sam's has put the, the DJ booth now back to where we put it in 2005 which allows for it's kind of on a balcony there and, and faces out allows us to project project the sound towards the main stage which is the best sonically and there's a little utility room back there that's you know, the green room you know so when you have someone especially people that have come from a long way away um, there's an area to sit and talk and hang out and put your stuff and you know snack and whatnot but you know when we first opened that up for RA you know when we when we started that partnership this I mean this is relevant to the to the yeah. 
topic. Um, we hadn't cracked that door open since 2005. Wow. And when we opened it up for RA, because there were so many people coming and we wanted to have a nice hosting room, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was Sam called someone on the radio or something or took a picture and sent it to all of us, but the door opened and no one had been in there since us. And all of our stage notes were still on the wall from 2005. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was a pretty cool moment and, uh, and, and realizing how much time's gone by and, you know, how much we love that space and, and, and uh, what great use we make of it. You did a really good job booking that stage. That was one of the last things you booked. Yeah. You did a really good job, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Jason was our original talent buyer. Yeah, he, so. he, he, he did it. I was really good when you were we good. had to deal with artists. Artists, yeah. He just came along. It was my turn. Yeah, I didn't do so good with that. So you mentioned that so the 2005 Underground stage was one of the last things that you directly bought talent for. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that was it. But that, I mean, it's just simpler, simpler times. Yeah. But but you mentioned that uh, the lane that you were in sonically, aesthetically, was different from what was going on at the EMF as a whole at the time. Can you can you describe how it differed in some of the acts that sort of? Yeah, it was just it was it was a techno IDM sort of you know uh, smart guy you know kind of programming. I mean, we we the techno is, used to be aside from our underground events was, was quite nerdy when it came to, to being taken seriously in the music business and you know when you know trance which evolved into EDM then even house in a lot of ways started to become more and more popular techno was always this kind of nerdy orphan that, that you know nobody really completely understood or really wanted to deal with but it was it was more than our passion you know we had already been programmed and, and made these decisions and we were wired for it so you know these techno people you know all sort of knew each other and had known each other since the early 90s because there weren't that many of us around and over the years you know producers promoters you know alike were all friends and the the different roles would get defined as time went by and as the relationships evolved in, in, in the different different areas so you know we had been working with you know New York and, and, and Mutech and uh, you know a few guys for a fairly long period of time at this point these were some of the people that we were reaching out to and bringing in Detroit for our parties and these were places that we would go visit as a group you know true friends true family and music based so uh, when when we uh, when we got the opportunity to, to produce that stage it was like all hands on deck you know and everybody worked really really hard together and we had you know badging and branding for everybody and just want to make sure that we got as much visibility as possible. Yeah. yeah, we had names for everybody because they were still lesser. Nobody really would know who they were. So, yeah, so we wanted to make sure that when people photographed the sets, they, they would they would have that name that they could reference later, you know, because the names were, you know, so not as well known as, as they are today. Sure. And then 2006, prior to WMC, that's, that's when everything really, really changes. Paxahow is given the keys to the keys to Heart Plaza, essentially. Um, exactly. Yeah. Keys to Heart Plaza. And then you kind of haven't stopped working since. We're, we're, we're in uh, a nice office on Rosa Parks Boulevard right now with like a it's a pretty typical office, but uh, where were you working out of at the time and right at, right as you got the 
Well, that, actually, no, we had the Glendale Spire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 2004, um, we saw some guy tacking a for lease sign up on this old building, and I don't know if it was a dry, it was, it was a print shop. Print shop. shop. It was an old print shop. For sale. And it was a it was a for lease for sale, and uh, and I remember pulling up and 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 asking him about it, and. I mean, it was an empty building. It was like it was like dirt floor in the back, you know. And yeah, and it was it was, but it was it was weird, strange, and it was perfect for us. And uh, and we just asked the guy, you know, if he'd be willing to entertain unique offers. <laughs> and uh, and he was a very straightforward guy. I remember him saying, like, "Look, let's just pretend like we just spent two months going back and forth, and save us the time." here's my offer, you know, and it was something that we were able to, you know, through uh, our, you know, group of relationships, we were able to strike a deal with the guy and shake hands. And we worked on the place for months. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we were still painting ourselves. Got a great picture of Sam after a, a tanning session yeah. in there, uh, <laughs> cleaning the floor. Uh, I mean, we, we, we just, we, we, that's a, we've got, we, so we photographed that whole process of tearing it out and, and rebuilding it. And uh, we were, we were in that, building we had we had inherited or been given or uh, asked to take some old furniture from a family office so it looked like a <laughs> the back car office it looked like a car dealership from the 80s <laughs> or maybe early 90s and yeah, we were all had our little cubicles and then we put everything together ourselves it took forever and um and and it was almost like the universe knew that we needed a home base for what was about to come mm -hmm. because it was it, we were we were you know proactively trying to create a professional environment that we could go to every day, you know, we could have real phones and a real address to get mail and a real place we could meet people. Um, we kept the we the table. There was a print table there that we kept, we kept and, and we cut it up and made it our conference it's, table. It's still, it's still there. It's yeah, we, yeah, now, it's right? a shelf now. But yeah. um, so we had our first conference table. All these chairs we went down to the used furniture place, which I don't think that place is still open down I don't here. Think so. And uh, I just you know grabbed a bunch of stuff and put it together, and it was just it was perfect. So the night we got the news, which was our our self-imposed and, and deadline we gave to the city we actually got the news i remember it was one in the morning before miami and we were all in there just working like crazy and uh it was a it was a pretty exciting time but i'm very thankful we had that infrastructure Did clark warner came over we had clark a, was there we had a cheers little cheers, cheers. Yeah. oh nice yeah. speaking of clark yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and at that point the city uh entrusts taxahel with the festival and it only gave us two weeks or two months. Yeah. We had eight weeks, yeah. So we, we had met, so just a snapshot, and I don't want to take all the mic time, but I just know the timeline really well, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, so we had, um, you know, we had been working for Kevin, and uh, after 2005, it was, it was very clear with him that, you know, we want to take on a larger role because we could see the festival needed it. And, you know, um, you know, Carl, Derek, and Kevin had all been instrumental in the, in the years prior to us. But, you know, you've got to keep in mind there's, you know, every element of electronic music is growing at the same time. So, you know, these guys weren't home anymore you know they were traveling and, and and constantly touring and this you know we learned very quickly that the festival was not a part-time job so uh, i want to say it was it was it was pretty late we worked through the winter it was probably um i can't remember the month it was but there was a, let's just say 
early winter, late fall, Kevin decided that he was going to focus um, his attention on his music career, and um, you know we didn't have anybody else to work for. So uh, it was like February twentieth, I remember. February <laughs> twentieth, <laughs> exactly. Oh, I, I was I was about to go back to Berlin, and then Kevin announced his thing. I'm like, oh, I got something. Yeah. <laughs> so we we wrote a letter to the city and. Um, got a response and became part of a vetting process and, and ultimately a grooming process without even knowing it. We had a really incredible liaison that ultimately became a great friend, very, very instrumental in, 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 in training us uh, how to work in a public forum that we had never done before. And um, we had a deadline of WMC because we needed that event to promote. And um, it, it came down to the day of when we got the news. And um, we've been working on it, like you said, full-time ever since. What was the attitude of the city leading up to 2006? Um, was it, like... Cautious. Yeah. <laughs> Very yeah. cautious. Yeah. The, um, the, the, in the beginning, it, the size of the event took everybody by surprise. Um, it shaped a lot of personalities and opinions very quickly. Um, by 2003, you know, the city wanted to keep, you know, it, it as closely related to the music culture as possible. But keep in mind, there still aren't really blueprints for this sort of event, especially in Detroit. It just wasn't happening. So it took a very long time um, to, to understand the event and understand the responsibilities and requirements, you know, for the event. And by the time we found ourselves in interviews um, cautious is, is an understatement I mean we were we were really really under the microscope for a long time we were being interviewed and tested daily for eight weeks which is like going to school yeah. you know and um, um, so it was but but you know and there's a lot of uncertainty on both sides I mean um, the city and, and and our side during those eight weeks and ultimately a decision had to be made because we were out of time and uh, the city felt we were the best candidates and we felt that it was the best city and um you know the first year fortunately was a was a success and and everybody was held accountable to their you know promises obligations and then it was after immediately after 2006 that the that the relationship was really solidified well, the city needed the festival to happen as well like this is like can you can we speak a little bit about downtown and what was going on in downtown at the time and the importance of movement as this annual economic shot in the arm. Well, I mean, I think that there had always kind of been, it, it's, it's a little bit of a multifaceted thing, right? Because there's the one part of it is the understanding of the, the, the impact globally of this culture that was created in the city and the need to recognize it you know, um, that had kind of been established, you know, on the timeline. And then the other thing is, is the economic impact. But as you know, as we've alluded to in the, in it had, I think it had been kind of reaching, um, in the, in the former incarnations of the event, I think it had been kind of reaching the threshold of tolerance because of different, you know, inadequacies of various things, you know? So I think we were kind of reaching that, that point to where if it hadn't really kind of made, 
if it hadn't made sense after 2006, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's, 2006 would have collapsed. Yeah, you know, so um, because it's, 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 it is a taxation on, you know, human and physical resources for the city, for the police department, you know, for traffic downtown, things of that nature, you know. So if it's not, if it's not, uh, you know, meeting up to its obligations in regards to, you know, partners and the city and sponsors and things of that nature, then there's, it's a law of, it's diminishing returns, you know. Um, so it was, that was a whole nother kind of subliminal or subconscious kind of pile of stress that was on us, like understanding the significance of needing to stabilize, stabilize. Uh, that was our theme that year, you know, of stabilizing this thing so that it could go on into perpetuity, you know, for the hundreds of thousands of people that had grown to see it as a yearly kind of pilgrimage, you know? So it was, you know, th these are things that you just wake up at night, like, oh my God, like, cause you, you're not even thinking about it until it, it comes like a javelin into your brain, you know? And, um, that man, that first year was insane. You know, we were doing so much of it on site ourselves, running ice and this and that and whatever. And it, we all wore pants. Yeah, it was ninety-five degrees. Great for a week. No rain. No rain. Yeah. No rain. All of a sudden, we're like, all right, the prayer's getting enhanced next year. It was ninety-five, ninety-six, and ninety-seven wow. were the three days. And it was really hot. <laughs> kind of like last year. Yeah, exactly. So, so Chuck, to speak a little bit about uh, the cultural significance of movement, um, obviously our listeners can't see this, but you're wearing a sweatshirt that says support Detroit artists. And, you know, you've spent a, a lot of time over the years um, understanding the second wave, understanding the third, fourth, fifth wave of Detroit artists and navigating a musical ecosystem that's pretty complex actually you know like I, I've, I've heard Detroit called like a hater city here and there <laughs> and I mean like <laughs> like how do you how, how is this like this is your job to sort of to some extent be a steward of what's coming up in Detroit scene for the world to some extent it's uh it's it's not an easy job to uh, make everybody happy, and you have to learn that you're never going to make everybody happy. You know, um, we have a lot of great relationships with everybody. You know, I don't I don't think we have that many enemies. I would say, <laughs> but um, ourselves, right? <laughs> but um, you know, uh, fortunately, like you know, uh, you know, we we work with. Uh, a lot of the Detroit artists throughout the year. We work with up and coming artists. We do, you know, uh, work with Carl and uh, Kevin, you know, and um, Stacy, you know, Stacy's residency here in Detroit. We do a show with him every three months, you know, and uh, he does really well, you know, it's, it's great. He does better than a lot of people that we uh, bring here, you know. You know, it, it's just uh, working with everybody. Communication is key, you know, making sure people understand what we're doing and stuff like that. You know, when it comes to the music that, um, you know, we're booking, we're trusting in a lot of acts, you know, to keep, you know, uh, developing them here. And, um, you know, it, it's pretty neat watching a lot of these acts grow from, you know, being a 
act that would only do a couple hundred people to now headlining huge festivals all over the world and they're getting paid ungodly amounts of money and just like all types of stuff and it's crazy you know it's it, you know techno and this kind of music has only been around for so long it's not like rock and roll or anything like that you know so it's always evolving you know what i mean so it's 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 a it's a crazy ride you know i don't know how to really explain it you know i think that um we're really inspired by you know detroit artists and what everybody has done to like lay out a the blueprint of sorts or whatever you would call it you know so you know a lot of uh detroit artists and local artists are our inspirations when it comes to djing and stuff like that and like it's crazy i don't know some of the detroit locals here some of my favorite djs ever you know yeah it's, they're really good you know there's a lot of them though. yeah there's this city has probably more djs than any other city next to like berlin or Amsterdam, probably. And good DJs. Yeah, and they're you all can't, really can't good. can't be shitty you know? from Detroit, because, right. you know, there's so many examples and, and styles in front of you. Like, if you can't at least get to a starting point, you're not going to ever really get heard. But people are real picky here, though. Yes. You know, they are really, um, you know, really opinionated. Uh, people really pay attention to the music here so it's not you can't just bring someone you know you have to like make sure that it's gonna make sense because if it doesn't either no one will come or we'll lose money or someone something's gonna lose you know or like the artist will their ego will be bruised or like whatever like who knows you know what I mean but some stuff works here some stuff doesn't you know um, there's a lot of risks you know so we, we try really hard to like ride that wave of uh, taking risks and not taking risks at the same time with our events, you know. And furthermore, for movement, uh, you have a difficult job in terms of uh, making the nerds happy. And yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. You know, well, you know, ever since the internet came out, you know, and everybody's like on, uh, on the whole like uh, Jay and Silent Bob vibes, you know, um, we, uh, we've, we've experienced, you know, you book an act and everybody hates that one act and it can completely like mess you up, you know, it completely derails you, you know, we experienced a little bit of that last year. Um, and it was just crazy to us, you know, because technically we sort of almost kind of book the festival the same way the formula the same way every year you know for the most part like you know we do always kind of look for we're always looking for new stuff we're looking for awesome legacy stuff we're looking for everything we're trying to make everyone happy it's a multi-genre festival you won't hear any like rock and roll or nothing like that obviously but it's all like techno uh you don't really we don't do any edm you know and like we dabble with it like light edm but nothing super edm -y stuff like we don't do that you know and um it's really hard you know uh you have to like a, you have to have faith in the artists and some of them and and some are hot some are not you know it, it's a really weird thing and um we just try to stick to what we feel will make everyone happy 
And in a way, too, we're following the blueprint of, of how the festival was done before yeah. us. Well, we did. Yeah. yeah, we've always like paid attention to the way the festival was always curated. You and know, we what always I mean? have a hip hop act. We always had, yeah, we always had. They always had a hip hop act. They always had this. They had that. You know, there were multiple stages. You know, so it's 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 every stage we book it a certain way, and it kind of flows that way. You know, and. Sometimes I wish we had more room on the plaza to do more stages or do more artists, you know, or or have more genres, you know, like I would love to do a bass stage, you know, I would love to do, you know, certain things, but there's not enough room for all that, you know, yeah, there's about 90 slots, something like that, you know, 85 to 90 slots, something like that, and um, they fill up really fast, mm -hmm. you know, each day is five or six slots, slots per stage, you know? So it fills up really quick and, and it's hard to get stuck booking it, you know? You, you, it's like playing chess with DJs. You're like, I gotta book this, but then I gotta book this first and then I gotta book around it, And but this needs to make the ultimate sense first, you know, to go and book the things around it, you know what I mean? So. There's a lot of, uh, you know, we listen to, we listen to what people say, you know, we, we pay attention, um, you know, we, uh, we do polls and stuff like that. We, you know, and we keep our, we keep our hands to the pulse, I guess you would say, like we listen, yeah. you know, we, we pay attention to music. If there's something that we don't, we're not familiar with, we pass around the links, we listen to the music. You know, we barely like look at what likes are on Facebook or any of that stuff. It's just like the it's just like the way the music, you know, reaches out to us and and if the you know, if there's like some sort of relationship, whether we know the person or not, like we go after it, you know, and it this year worked out really well I feel. You know, we've got a really um really good run so far with our campaign and um it's not like last year, you know, we, there was always like the, the joke, oh, you booked Diplo, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was crazy, you know? So, and, and it was just a big nightmare to deal with. But he came and he had one of the best sets at the festival. And a lot of people came that wouldn't normally go to the festival to see him play. And that's the whole point of a festival is to go and learn new things, learn new music. That's why we used to book Benny Benassi, you know, and things like that on the edge. We broke Skrillex there, Pretty Lights, Bass Nectar, you know, uh, Girl Talk played there a couple times, you know. It's, it, there's like a lot of those weird acts on the side that aren't really techno, but they're in our electronic music scene and they bring people and they find the underground music. They come to see Pretty Lights that year, but they stumbled across the underground stage and heard some techno that they never heard before and then all of a sudden they're in techno you know and they're like into that you know and just progresses and that's what goes on with our music anyways it's constantly progressing you know so it's it's interesting how earlier we were speaking about the underground stage and you you can't book acts that are too big down there and, it's hard. And, and yeah and you can't book like just ambient and IDM acts that aren't going to draw people. 
I'm sure like Heart Heart Plaza is like this sort of like equalizing factor for the festival. Like it's it's does it feel limiting at times? Like could you ever envision movement not at I mean obviously there's movement to Reno, but this is a different thing. But could you ever imagine like a Detroit movement that didn't happen at Heart Plaza? Yeah. I mean, yeah, why not? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's that's the other thing that we're that we're always cognizant of in regards to programming is, you know, first and foremost, one of our major directives is safety. Right. And so, you know, when we're when we're programming the event and who's on, you know, Chuck and I work very closely in regards to making sure that we're moving or or kind of dissecting crowds around the park, you know, so that there isn't everybody trying to be at one place at one time, although it may perceptively seem that way in some instances, but, you know, we could never book somebody where everybody in the park would want to be at that one stage, you know? So, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, people are like, oh, conflicts or whatever. It's, it's kind of done strategically on our part so that we keep people moving around, you know, um, so that they're not all aggregating in, in, in one place you know i think that with anything with any type of municipal facility that has not had a major overhaul within a generation i think there's an inevitability i mean it's just i don't i don't think we would be responsible if we weren't at least keeping that somewhere in our mind that there's going to be a point at some point in the future where we're either going to have to move because they're redoing the park or, you know what I'm saying? Something like that. So, I mean, we're, we're always kind of shooting ideas here and there, you know, um, things that we may see or, you know, whatever. Uh, I'll keep that close to the vest for now, you know, but it's uh, right here, right here, (laughs) you know, but um, it's, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, we're always, it's always there, you know what I mean? I wanted to ask you one more question, Sam. Um, I, I remember attending the festival for the first time, and I believe it was the Made in Detroit stage in 2007. It was like Ox 88 played there, maybe Matthew Deere. Mm-hmm. It was uh, when it was in the round. Was it was in a tent. No, no, yeah. in Detroit. It was oh, was it made in Detroit? No, was it the underground stage? No. Or was it in a It was in a tent, long clears fan tent. Yeah, and that was the time. And I just remember, I had pretty much like come out as a kid, like as a music fan, but somebody was like trying to make sense of what I was into and seeing rhythm and sound and mm. people like that. It was, it was just totally a formative moment for me. But I remember the sound in that tent was just crazy that year like I had this was like the way that this music was supposed to be absorbed and I I just I was living in Pittsburgh at at the time I just never experienced a sound system like that and yeah (laughs) can you talk about like it's working yeah So Sam, you speak about that's where we came from. Yeah, and as Jason and Jason said, I mean, you know, the thing that set us apart, that set Detroit apart in the '90s, was where in the in Toronto and around the Midwest, you had lights and projections and whatever and whatever. In Detroit, it was basically who was going to have the biggest sound system, you know, because back then there wasn't sound companies that were, you know, kind of lining up to do these parties and whatever. So. 
when we kind of took on the event, that was like a, a prime operative with us in regards to what we were going to bring to the table, you know, and 2006, we weren't really able to do it the way that we wanted to because of the time constraints and where we were budgetarily and, the, and just the fear we had in being, you know, uh, financially irresponsible in regards to that aspect of it. You know, it was, it was decent. It, it allowed us to do our thing. But once we kind of got our relationship with Thunder Audio, the local, the local uh, company here, and, you know, audio companies never really get told we want five times more than what we need for the space. You know what I mean? It's, they don't really, you know, they're always told in a, in a, in a festival thing, what we want coverage, you know, and, and, you know, whatever. And we're just like, you need to, shit's got a fucking bump. You know what I mean? And we're very fortunate to have a relationship with them. And, and when you've got a company like that, that is local, that is one of the top five touring audio companies in the country and their inventory is right here you get you know uh you get uh perks like the owner of the company coming down to like tune the pas and you know because they're they get revved up because they've been in the business for years and when they see like us the younger guys <laughs> excuse me compared to them like all about like louder, 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 clear, 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 you know? And so that's one of the, you know, that's one of the, the things that we really pride ourselves on is creating that as you had a visceral experience, you know, feeling it, you know, cause that, that, that was the thing. I mean, that is such a, a major aspect of it is being able to stand on that dance floor and close your eyes and just be feeling that air pressure being moved. You know, it takes a lot of amplifier power to do that in a large outdoor space. And, you know, a lot of people don't know the science behind it, but they can feel it, you know, and, and that's what we're trying to do. You know, you don't get that at a lot of other festivals. There's noise order ordinances and DB levels and stuff like that and whatever. And it's a huge, it's a huge thing for us. So I'm, I'm glad that you had that experience because that's exactly the point we're trying to get across when you step onto our footprint. Woo! 